We are starting chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting to verse 1 through verse 8. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before, and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Today our focus is going to be just on verse 1, but verse 1 prepares us for what is stated in verses 2 through 8. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, it is only you that knows all truth. It's only by your spirit that this is conveyed to us. And I pray today that we would not just hear, but grasp, treasure, apply the truth that you have for us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 4, verse 1 begins with the word, finally. In the first three chapters, Paul begins by expressing thanks to God that these Thessalonian believers have taken their conversion and faith in God seriously. And, as a result, are living what Paul calls, and I would agree it was a commendable Christian life in spite of their difficult circumstances. Remember, they were being persecuted, they were being resisted, oppressed. So they were living this commendable Christian life in spite of their difficult circumstances and in spite of the newness of their faith. They were young believers. They had not been believers all that long. Paul then goes on to talk about the work God had given him to do and how he, Silvanus and Timothy, were carrying it out, including leaving Thessalonica to minister in other places. They came to Thessalonica, ministered there, a church was established, Believers were gathering, and uh, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy moved on. And that meant that uh, they were not there in Thessalonica to encourage and support these new believers and to help them in their spiritual growth and development. And it was out of concern, Paul goes on to say in these first three chapters, it was out of concern for the spiritual well-being of these believers that Paul and Silvanus 
sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to work with the believers for the purpose of making sure that their faith was holding strong, especially given the fact that they were experiencing persecution, but also they were hearing that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were getting resistance and opposition and even being persecuted where they were going to minister the gospel themselves. And imagine being a new believer, uh, being told that you were going to be safe in God's hands and God was going to take care of you, and here his ministers who told you this were experiencing hardship. And so Paul wanted to make sure that they weren't pulling back or falling away from this good faith that they had, this strong faith that they had, uh, not only because of their own experiences in Thessalonica, but because of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy's experiences in other parts. Coming back to verse 1, after the word finally, Paul goes on to say, we request and exhort. Or in other words, we request and strongly urge you in the Lord Jesus. That is, Paul was requesting and exhorting or urging these believers under the authority of the Lord Jesus and for the sake of the Lord Jesus. I know that we could easily move on to the rest of verse 1 because there's really not much more to say about this little statement that I just read. But I would like to stay here for a moment, or two, or three, or five, because we too often use words without giving an adequate amount of thought to their meaning and how their meaning ought to affect the way we live. And so I'm going to take Paul's use of the words, Lord Jesus, and talk about what the use of these two words in this order mean to us, or at least ought to mean to us. The title Lord means sovereign or master. And as a result, it speaks of the one who has the position and therefore the authority, who has the position or authority and the right to tell us what to do. Lord means sovereign or master. The name Jesus means to rescue or save, which is why we often say it means Jehovah saves. When the title Lord is connected to Jesus, it means our master is our savior. Our master is our savior. In other words, the one who has the position, the authority, and the right to tell us what to do is also the one who saves us from the penalty, power, and practice of sin. Now, I don't know what this means to you, but I would encourage you to consider that this is a profound truth, a profound reality. To take it out of the words of Lord Jesus and put it into the words of God, the label of God, the one who judges us is the very one who died to save us from the consequences of that judgment. That, to me, is a powerful statement of what God is like. And that is profound. 
All right, beyond these two definitions, it is important to notice the order in which these two words occur. The title Lord precedes the name Jesus. Therefore, the master who rules over us and to whom we owe obedience is the Savior who paid the price necessary to save us from the eternal consequences of our rebellion against our master and our disobedience to what he says. And if you understand the profound reality of this truth, then you understand what John meant, what he wrote, in this is love. Not that we loved God, not that we loved the ruler of the universe, but that the ruler of the universe loved us and sent his son, who is Emmanuel, our Savior, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what love is. The ruler, the authority, the the one who is the master, the one who is the boss, the one who actually owns us. We are his slaves. And we have rebelled against him. He is the very same one who came and became the propitiation for our sins. And the point here is that Jesus, who is the master, is also our Savior, Lord Jesus. He is not one or the other, but both at the same time. And this, to me, is an important truth. It affects the way we see God, the way we think about His Son, Jesus Christ. This truth is so important that the words Lord Jesus in that order appear 103 times in the New Testament. And the words Lord Christ, which is pretty similar, appear twice. Peter uses the phrase Lord and Savior Jesus Christ four times. And in talking to the shepherds about the birth of Christ, the angel identified Jesus as the Savior who is Christ the Lord. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, that God has made Jesus both Lord, notice what he put first, and Christ, Messiah this Jesus whom you crucified. And the point that Peter was making to them was that they didn't just crucify their Savior, they had crucified their Lord, their Master, the Ruler, the one that they should have been submitting to and obeying. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul ties our salvation to confessing with their mouth Jesus as Lord. He doesn't say, he doesn't tie our salvation to confessing Jesus as Savior. No, he ties it to confessing Jesus as Lord. The one we are to obey. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, we are told that to all who obey him, To all who obey him, Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. That's an interesting statement. 
And we don't often stop and pause and give consideration to these kinds of interesting statements. But I'm urging you to do that, not just in this situation, in this case, but when you're reading the Bible on your own. There are some pretty interesting statements that we need to pause and give serious consideration to. In Hebrews 5, 8 and 9, we are told that to all who obey him, Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. Or in other words, to all who obey Jesus as their master, just in keeping with what we're talking about right now, Jesus gives eternal life. You find the same idea stated at the end of Romans chapter 6. And finally, this truth is important because just as we must trust in Jesus our Savior to save us from our sins, so we must trust and obey Jesus our Lord in order to live the kind of life that is consistent with our salvation. And that life turns out to be an abundant life. The kind of life Jesus actually saves us to live. So I want to ask a few questions, encourage you to think about these things. Do you think of Jesus as your master and your savior? Do those two thoughts, those two realities come together when you think of Jesus? He is my master and my savior. Do you intentionally and consistently treat your savior as your Lord? Do you thank God that Jesus is your Lord just as much as you thank God that Jesus is your Savior? Do you believe that trusting Jesus as Lord is just as important as trusting him as Savior? This has been something to me that has caught my attention for years. We believe without question by trusting in Jesus as our Savior, we will have eternal life. Something we have never seen. Nobody's come back from. But we are hard-pressed at times to trust Jesus as our Lord when he tells us how to live in the day-to-day affairs of life, especially when somebody is not treating us well, or things aren't going well at work, or sickness is upon us, or other troubles are coming our way. We trust in something that we have never seen, and we trust it as if, I don't mean this negatively, as if blindly. We just accept that it's true. Will I trust Jesus as my Lord in that same way? As those who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus, my encouragement to each of us is that we see our Master as our Savior and that we treat our Savior as our Master. Continuing on with verse 1, Paul says that as you received from us, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. And I'm going to stop there just because I want to talk about that part of verse 1. Now I know that uh, the portion I just read is incomplete. It's not a complete thought. I'm acknowledging that. But I do want to stop here because I want to talk about just three words. Ought, walk, and please. 
Just those three words. Ought, walk, and please. In using these three words in this order, Paul is connecting how we ought to live as Christians to that being a way of life that pleases God. And Paul's use of the word ought is important here. Because the word ought means we must. We must live as Christians are to live. And we must live a life that is pleasing to God. And the and there's two truths in that that I want to clarify first. To live as Christians ought to live is to live in a way that pleases God. You want to please God? Live as a Christian ought to live. And this means that there's only one kind of life. The life that Christians ought to live, which becomes the life that pleases God. Now, I wasn't taught this growing up, but this was kind of a common belief in the churches that I was aware of as a teenager. And the, the kind of common belief was that if you were just a regular Christian like us here today, then, you know, you were just a regular Christian. But if you were a missionary or a pastor or an evangelist, you were like an extra special Christian. That's not really true. You want to live a life that pleases God? Whether you are just a regular Christian or a pastor, or a missionary, or an evangelist. Live as a Christian ought to live. That's what pleases God. The second truth that I want to point out is that the word ought implies obligation. It means must. Ought and must convey the same thought. It it implies obligation. Therefore, living the Christian life as we ought to live it is not an option. It is an obligation or a requirement. Of course, we can choose to or choose not to. I acknowledge that. But we aren't choosing to or choosing not to as if the choice is ours to make. It's an obligation that we have. And we are choosing to either fulfill the obligation or not fulfill the obligation. In talking to his disciples, Jesus uses the word ought in the same way Paul is using it here in 1 Thessalonians. And we can read about this in Luke chapter 17, verse 10. Now just to help you see the context, the disciples had asked Jesus, increase our faith. Help us to have stronger faith. And so Jesus responds to this. would encourage you to read that passage. It's it's a pretty enlightening uh, response Jesus made. But we get down to verse 10, and Jesus said, So you, you disciples, and he's putting them in the context of being servants, so you, when you do all the things which are commanded you by your master, say this, we are unworthy slaves. Why? We have done only that which we ought or were obligated to have done. And I'm just pointing this scripture out to help you see that this must idea is not unique to Paul and Thessalonians. Christ used the same idea 
in a variety of places, and this is just one of them that's easily seen. And so as those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus for eternal salvation, we are obligated to live as Christians ought to live. Now the wonderful thing about this is if we do that, we are also living a life that is pleasing to God. And that has its own rewards. So how do we or can we know how Christians ought to live? Just as Paul taught and instructed the Thessalonian believers in the way they ought to live and please God, so we have the word of God, we have the Bible. The Bible teaches us how we ought to live as Christians. And looking into the scriptures doesn't mean looking at certain parts and ignoring others. We need to work at reading the entire word of God and seeing all that God has for us and all that he instructs us and what we are to do in all cases. Well, along with the Bible, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals what the Word of God teaches us. The Holy Spirit instructs us. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit enlightens us. The Holy Spirit reveals to us what we need to know in order to live as Christians ought to live. And beyond that, God has given to the the body of Christ, pastors and teachers, to to teach and instruct us how we ought to live. And so we do have the means to know how we ought to live as Christians. And I just want to point out a few scriptures that speak about the kind of Christian life that pleases God. And these are just a few. There's a lot more to consider. But I just want to show you from the word of God a few scriptures that address that. In Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, we are told that living a self-serving, self-pleasing, self-ruled life is a form of hostility toward God. Now, common sense tells us that you're not going to please God if that's the way you're living. And common sense can then deduce that if you live the opposite of that, you will live a life that is pleasing to God. The opposite of that would be a God-serving, a selfless, and a God-ruled life. That is what is pleasing to God. We read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9-10, through 10, that gaining a proper knowledge of God's will enables us to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, which in turn pleases Him in all respects. How do we gain a knowledge of God's will? By studying the scriptures, including the stories. The stories in the Old Testament give us some good pictures, a good sense of what the will of God is, of how God wants things to go, of how he wants us to live. Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, says something that most of us have heard, at least our children have, because we've probably told them. It's to our favor as parents, you know. But here's what Colossians 3.20 says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing. It doesn't say just this is pleasing. Notice, it's well-pleasing 
to the Lord. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And on behalf of the children, I do want to say that parents too often expect more from their kids than they give to God. And that is truly sad. So just as much as the children are to be obedient to their parents, we parents need to be obedient to God. And that's what pleases God. We read in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 through 16, and uh, I'm going to quote most of it. Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So we spend the first part of our gatherings offering up praise to God, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on, and do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now I know that we have often heard and maybe been taught that praise is a sacrifice, the sacrifice of praise. Well, I dare say that it's not very costly to you to give that kind of praise. It's the right thing to do. It's a good thing to do. It takes the place of the sweet aroma that rises up to God from your sacrifice in the Old Testament. But the point of this portion in Hebrews, I believe, is that doing good and sharing is what pleases God. See, the reality is we can gather, we can sing, we can give testimony, uh, we can give thanks to God and go out and live just as bad as we lived the week before. But you can't do good and share with those who have need and live just as bad as you did the week before. That is a change of life and that is what pleases God. And finally, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, we see that obeying God and doing the things that please him has its rewards. I pointed this out a little earlier. Pleasing God has its rewards. And in this case, it moves God to give us what we ask for in prayer. So let me ask a few more questions. Do you love God so much that you want to please him by how you live day in and day out. You see, when we love, we want to please. Without love being our motivation, we may please, but it's more to appease. When you love, you want to appease, you want to please. Do you love God so much that you want to please him by how you live day in and day out? Is living a life pleasing to God on your mind when you get up in the morning? Is that something that you start thinking about as you look at your day? I want to live this day in a way that's pleasing to God. Do you think about what is pleasing to God when you make difficult choices? Do you let that enter into your thinking as you're examining the choices before you? Do you think about what is pleasing to God when you deal with challenging situations or deal with challenging relationships, people, or face the enticements of the devil's temptations 
or worldly attractions or fleshly pleasures? Do you strive to do what is pleasing to God in the use of your finances or how you do your job or how you use your free time? If you love God this much, so much that you want to please him, or you're not quite there yet and you're at the place where you want to love God this much, and that's good, I am not discrediting that. If you're only at the place where you want to love God this much and therefore are making uh, making an honest effort at living like a Christian ought to live, then the final words of verse 1 are for you. They're going to be lost on the rest of us. If we don't really want to please God, then what Paul says in these last words of verse 1 aren't really very meaningful to us. We're not going to really pay attention to them. But if you are like that, you want to please God, you love him that much, these words are for you. And I want to read the whole verse just to bring you into these last words. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. That you excel still more. Now remember, Paul is writing to new believers who probably have a ways to go in growing toward Christian maturity and godly living. However, in spite of that, it is probable that we can apply these words, excel still more, to ourselves even though some of us have been Christians for a number of years. Now it's important to note that Paul was not criticizing these believers when he exhorts them to excel still more. Nor was he inferring that they were doing something wrong. In fact, he prefaced his exhortation for them to excel still more with the confirmation that they were already living a Christian life that was pleasing to God. So why excel still more? Because he didn't want them to settle there. He didn't want them to get to some place of spiritual growth and say, this is enough. This is good enough. This is as far as I need to go or want to go. He wanted them to excel still more. And for all of you who have stayed with Redford Church all these years, that's what I've wanted for us. To not settle in, to not stay at one place, but to continue growing, to excel still more. Why? Why excel still more? Because in spite of the distance we have come in our spiritual growth, it is probable, it is most likely, We have further to go. The reality is we are multifaceted individuals with numerous thoughts about many things. We have an array of values. We have multiple beliefs. We have fears. We have desires. 
We have interests and commitments. It's real likely too many of us still have some mixed motives, double standards. I hear double standards all the time, mostly because when you're counseling married couples, one spouse is complaining about what the other one's doing, and they're pointing out the principle or the standard or the requirement or the aspect of love that they're not living up to. And lo and behold, the spouse that's making the criticism is breaking that same principle, breaking that same standard, failing to live up to that same aspect of love. And we are filled with double standards. As I said earlier, our tendency as parents is to require more from our children than we give to God. That's a double standard. It's that easy. It comes on us that fast. So we are multifaceted individuals. And on top of all that, we're involved in a variety of relationships in the home, in the neighborhood, at work, here at church, in our extended families, with our friends. And in all these areas and relationships, the reality is, not that it's necessarily you have that much more to go, but the reality is we need to put off the old nature. We need to die to self-rule We need to die to selfishness. We need to put on Christ-likeness. And we need to learn to love as we ought. And given that no one has demonstrated the ability to change their whole life all at once, and if you do, I've said this for years, write the book, we'll all buy it, and we'll get on board with what you're doing. But the reality is nobody's demonstrated the ability to change their whole life all at once. So we can rightly agree that growth is a progressive process that takes place over a prolonged period of time. We realize this with our children. Let's face the reality of this in our spiritual growth. It takes time to grow spiritually. And so we need to keep excelling. We need to excel still more. We, keep to need, we need to keep going further and not stop where we are. And so to become godly in all our behavior, not just some of it, we need to continue to pursue God and to go, pursue godliness. And we need to do this on and on and on. Now, that doesn't mean that current achievements aren't commendable and good. They are. As far as you've grown, that is good. This is not a matter of criticism. This is not a matter of it's never good enough. It is good as far as you've grown. But remaining where you are the rest of your life, that's not commendable. That's not good. We are to become like Christ. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are to come to the fullness of Jesus Christ. These are what, this is what the word of God calls us to. 
And I know in my own life, it's still a work in progress. If not moving forward, then being vigilant to hold on to the ground that's been taken. Because it is easy to go backwards. So how do we excel still more? How do we do that? What does God's word teach us about this? Well, one thing God teaches us to do in relation to excelling still more is to pray. And there are several prayers in the Bible that if you look at them and consider them and use them as a model for your own praying, they would help you excel still more. And I want to point out just two things. One is a prayer from David and another is what to pray. David's prayer in Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24, in my opinion, is a model for how to excel still more. Because you may not have any idea what still needs to change in your life. You may think you have arrived. Here's what David prayed. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me and know my anxious thoughts. Those thoughts where I don't trust you so much, God. I'm I'm uncertain if you're going to really come through. Search me, O God, and know what's in my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. How about test me and see where my anxieties show up? And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. It wasn't just show me how bad I am, God, but show me where I need to change and then lead me in the way of change. That's, to me, a very wise prayer. And we can pray that the rest of our lives. And if you want to experience challenges in your life, if you want to experience difficult times, Pray this every day. Conform me, God, more and more to the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Ask God, conform me, God, more and more to the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29. He will, and you will excel still more. Paul provides a method that can be used over and over again. We find this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. And here's what he wrote. Therefore, having these promises, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, but having these promises, beloved, let us, first thing we need to do, cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. We need to cleanse ourselves. We need to get out of ourselves whatever we know is there that doesn't belong there. And then we need to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Perfect holiness. What what does that mean? That means work at keeping improving it until it is perfect. You are perfecting holiness. Working at perfecting it until it is perfect. That's another thing that we can do to excel still more. Peter reminds us of the necessity to be on guard against the return of old sinful ways. And in this portion, 
he implies that the old sinful ways can creep back in because they've been encouraged by false teachers or ungodly counselors. Regardless of how they start entering back in, there is great wisdom if you're going to excel still more in being on guard against the return of old sinful ways. Again, I don't know about you, but my experience is is that you know I deal with one thing and make good progress in it. it. May take six months, a year, two years, and then I take on another thing. And while I'm taking on that next thing, I I don't pay as much attention to the thing I just left behind. And if I'm not vigilant, I can fall backwards. So it isn't. It's over and done with. I'm changed forever. It's, I have to keep the ground that's been taken. And so being on guard against old things creeping back in is one way to excel still more. We can learn much, I believe, from what it takes to excel still more from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. And it actually goes through verse 14, but I'm just doing these verses. Here's what it says. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. It's available to everyone. It instructs us. Notice the order again. This is a common order in the scripture. It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. It instructs us to get out of our lives the things that stand between us and God, the things that prevent us from excelling still more. And then it says, and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. Notice the first thing he mentions, sensibly. Imagine sensibly. Titus is the only letter in which Paul uses this word sensible, but he uses it five times. It shows up five times in one single short book. Sensible. Hmm. What does it mean to be sensible? How about practical, realistic, rational? We heard today, you know, God is the only sane and sensible one. Actually, it was it was presented as the most. I would say he's the only one all the time. There are sensible and sane people sometimes. But all the time, God is perfectly all the time sane and sensible. We are to live sensibly, realistically, practically, rationally, and righteously and godly in the present age. And just because this is part of Thessalonians, the second coming, it helps us to be looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Are we looking forward to the return of Christ? Do we want to stand before him, holy and blameless? That's a reason to excel still more. From Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11, uh, through chapter 6, verse 2, we see the importance of moving beyond understanding and being able to talk about theology to living a godly life here and now. It is one thing to know the truths of Scripture, and that's important. That is good. It is one thing to have a theological basis upon which you build your understanding of God That is good and that is important. But we need to move beyond that to how we live. If the Christian life is not practical, if it's not applicable in everything, what is it really worth? If it only saves us for eternity, 
but leaves us in a hell today. What is it worth? No, the Christian life, the way of God, God himself calls us to live a godly life here and now and enables us to do it because that is the abundant life starting today and takes us on through eternity. And finally, excelling still more requires right thinking. I can't emphasize this enough. Right thinking. How you think about things is exceedingly important. You need to build your thinking on the word of God. That is exceedingly important. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20, where he exhorts us to be mature in our thinking. Not children, not teenagers, but mature in our thinking. Maybe you need to ask people who are more mature than you how you ought to think about some things. That could help you get there. That will help you excel still more. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul provides a list of things that are spiritually healthy and will help you spiritually grow. And he says, these are the things to think about. You've got a a measuring stick. You have a, a list of things that you can use to decide, am I thinking about worthy things or am I thinking about something that's unworthy? And in Titus, Paul exhorts his readers, as already said, to be sensible in how they live their Christian life. Do we use sound judgment? Are we practical and rational in how we study the scriptures, in how we think about God, in how we look at life and think about life? Do we understand the difference between right and wrong? Do we know what is right and what is wrong? And do we have a practical and realistic way to apply that? This is being sensible. My point is simply this. Right thinking about God, about God's word, about practical godliness, about the relationships you're in, about how your behavior affects others. That's kind of an overlooked right thinking area, but I'm urging you to make sure you include that. How your behavior affects others. Right thinking about how to speak the truth in love and other such things is essential to spiritual growth. It's essential to excelling still more. Finally, then, those of you who have been attending Redford Church, I request and exhort you under the authority of the Lord Jesus and for his sake, for his sake, In the Psalms, we have the 23rd Psalm. It's a beautiful statement, but there's a line in there that caught my attention many years ago, and I think it's an important line, at least for me. Lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, David says. Not for my sake, not for anybody else's sake, but for God's sake. So, under the authority of the Lord Jesus and for his sake, I'm exhorting you and encouraging you that as you have received from me instruction as to how you ought to live the Christian life and please God, just as you're actually doing this, 
at least to some degree, that you excel still more.